and welcome along to another live panel show for the Glow West podcast. We're here to chat all about the wonders of sex, sexuality and the body. If you if you like what we do, please do consider supporting us at patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack as it does help to keep the mics on. And if you want to reach out, you can drop me a DM on Twitter or Instagram at Glow West podcast. So today for our lovely live panel, which is kindly sponsored by Hanks, which makes amazing body safe lube and vegan condoms. And we have a fabulous panel all about consent because consent is obviously necessary but it's mandatory it's also sexy and it's also kind of complicated for some people and we're here to kind of dive into that a little bit more so I have an excellent lineup for you um, starting with Sarah Casper who is a consent educator and the founder of Comprehensive Consent. Her mission is to equip kids and teens with the knowledge necessary to navigate intimate encounters and create healthy relationships. With a focus on social emotional learning, Sarah helps young people understand bodily autonomy and practice consent skills when the stakes are low so that they're prepared when the stakes are high. Sarah, thanks Mel for joining me. How are you tonight? Doing well. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very flattered to be among all these panelists. Oh, fab. Well, you're all more than welcome along and in very, very good company tonight. So that's fab. Um, next up, we have Siobhan O'Higgins, who has been a sexual health promoter since 1990. And she has a background in youth and community work, health promotion, criminology and sexology. In 2019, she was funded by Life's Too Good and Rethink Ireland to do more of what she loves to do. And thus, she became part of the Active Consent National Programme, which works with an interdisciplinary team and they develop resources training and workshops for third level and second level students based on data from their peers and they come from a sex positive and inclusive point of view siobhan how are you i'm fine i'm fine i'm overawed by this panel and um Yes, I'm glad to be here, I think. <laughs> excellent, excellent, cool. Um, and then next up we have Richard M. Wright, who is a Jamaican New Yorker who lives in Florida and his, has been on the podcast before. And Richard combines his skill sets of his master's level expression art therapy studies and healthy masculinity and bystander intervention training with Men Can Stop Rape, which is an organization in the US. So because of all that, Richard created art-based workshops that foster consent culture and healthy masculinities utilizing movement, drama and play. He was published in the groundbreaking anthology Ask, Building Consent Culture. As a cisgendered straight man, he strongly believes that it is important for him to be accountable and represent by, representative by doing this important culture shifting work towards healthier and more liberatory paradigms. Richard, how are you tonight? Good, thanks. Thanks for bringing me back. I'm glad to be here. No worries. I might be, you might be back again after this even more. So we'll get you back Please. and back and back. <laughs> and then next up, we have Lade Ganakeli, who is the founder of Hands Off Initiative. Hands Off is a nonprofit organization where they are working towards breaking the cycle of abuse and building a safer society for the future generations by teaching kids and adults about consent. Through their work, they have partnered with organizations like Google and the United Nations Association to raise more awareness on the importance of consent. Lade, how are you keeping tonight? I'm doing really good. I'm so excited and happy and flattered to be here. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. You're most welcome along. And last but by no means least, we have Kitty Stryker, who has been working on defining and creating consent culture for over 10 years through her writing, workshops and her website, consentculture.com. She's the editor of Ask Building Consent Culture, 
and is especially interested in bringing conversations about consent out of the bedroom and into everyday life. Kitty also enjoys working as a street medic for direct actions, playing Dungeons and Dragons and caring for her two cats. Mm. She identifies as queer, asexual, sober, anarchist and femme. Kitty, thanks Amel. How are you today? Yeah, good. Thanks for having me. It's so great to to be amongst all these people and it's always great to see you Richard. <laughs> Fab. Well yeah you, you you co-worked together before so this is lovely to bring yes. it out in person so <laughs> that's fabulous. So I'm gonna dive straight in no pun intended or kind of it's a sex podcast. Um, I absolutely hate the idea of a grey area of consent and I think this gets bandied about in the media all the time oh the grey area the grey area and it's almost used as an excuse for people not to know about consent sometimes and um, so mm. I'm going to go to all of you and on what your thoughts are on this and how we can kind of change this approach as well I'm going to start with Sarah because you work specifically with young people do you does a gray area come up in your work at all yeah gray area comes up a lot I actually it's very interesting that you chose me to go first because I there is a it's hard to use the word gray, but I do believe that there are situations in consent where it's complicated because people don't know how to practice consent. And so it's not that it wasn't clear if the situation, it actually, it is unclear if a situation did or did not violate someone's bodily autonomy because someone doesn't understand if they have bodily autonomy or that they have bodily autonomy and what that means for them and what their boundaries are. Um, so it comes up a lot. It's why I work with kids to help them understand and become mindful of their bodies before it's ever about sex. So there isn't a gray area because I think right now for a lot of people, there actually is. Um, and it's of course different when we're talking about legal consent um, and consent in terms of education or philosophy. Um, but I think that it's really, it's hard for people to understand that there isn't a gray area because it's what consent is, is still so jumbled. So it feels gray. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And that's very understandable. And it's a nice compassionate approach that people just don't know about this kind of stuff. Um, Siobhan, you're obviously still working with young people as well. And, um, you know, we're relatively new to the consent conversation in Ireland a little bit, relatively speaking. What, that they haven't been having... Well, we've been having conversations about consent. I think the gray area is because it's not black and white. I mean, that's why they call it gray. There are all, you know, all shades of gray, you know, and people aren't clear about, you know, it's the difference between willing and wanting. We do lots of things that we're willing to do and we don't necessarily want to do. And especially when you're young, you don't know that you want to try that because you've never tried it. So how can you be well, yeah, 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 yeah. So then there's this nuance thing. So I think that's why the gray area came about, because it's not black and white, because it isn't black and white. There's all sorts of reasons why people become intimate with other people. And it may not just be for pleasure, maybe for all sorts of reasons. And it's about what I try to promote with young people in schools and things is to be OK. So there is a difference between willing and wanting, but be aware of why you're willing to do this. You know, be aware of what you're willing to do and why you're willing to do it. And it has to have that that um, caveat that you can stop if you don't like it. You know, and that is a gray area. It's not enthusiastic because you can't be enthusiastic. If you've never done anal sex, how could you be enthusiastic about it? You know, so, you know, so I, I, I know I understand what you're saying, Caroline, that you don't like this gray area. It should be clearer. 
but it is very nuanced. It is, you know, and they, and I think they say gray because it's between black and white. So, you know, but I prefer to think about the nuance of it mm. and the difficulty of actually being so clear about doing something or trying something. You just say, oh, I'm willing to try that. I don't know if I want to try it, but I'm willing to try it. And to be able to communicate with each other. And that's the really important thing. So for me, I don't know that I hate the gray area. I just think it's because it's not black and white. And I don't think consent is always black and white either. And I think that's an issue. And it's back to what Sarah's saying about people being aware of their bodily autonomy and being able to say, well, you know, yeah, you can do that to my body and I can do that to your body, but you know, let's, if we don't like it, can we stop? And it is really about that communication. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, no, and that's a very, very fair point. In an ideal world, it'd be a lot clearer, but we're not quite there yet for a lot of things. Right. And yeah. what about you, Richard, and the work that you do? Do you see it there? Um, yeah, in the work that I do, what I've recently been doing is, um, so has, has anyone or everyone seen the series I May Destroy You? Not yet, because I'm scared okay. of the rage. No. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, I highly, um, well, yeah, trigger warning, of course. Uh, but I highly recommend seeing it. I mean, it, um, in every episode, there is there is some nuance of consent um, in every episode, and I use it um, in my workshops because. Um, but the, like, there are things like um, um, a character consents to sex um, in a in a hetero context, and the uh, in the middle of sex, the man removes the condom without letting um, the woman know. You know, and um, we have discussions about that and all these other things. Um, and it, it kind of, I would say it, it kind of supports the idea of it being gray. And at the same time, it, it supports it not being gray because everybody comes to the same conclusion. So like, nope, that's a, a violation of consent. You know, there's no consent there. Um, the person was not, you know, that's called stealthing. That's, you know, that's a violation. Um, but I, I recommend seeing it. It's um, I, I know survivors who have seen it and appreciate seeing it. Um, good to have somebody to check in with, you know. Um, but yeah, at this point, that's what I'm using to kind of either debunk the idea of uh, of it being gray or 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 not to see where we're at. Okay, that's a yeah great example of what, what pop culture teaches mm -hmm. us and the messages that you have there as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And what about yourself, Lade? Your experiences? What are my experiences? Oh, for, yeah, for um, Lade. My experiences with yeah for Lade. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, that's okay. Um, just, just taking up space. Yeah, Don't mind so me. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's okay. <laughs> so in talking to kids and in talking to like adults and teenagers about consent, we definitely have situations where people say, oh, but consent is a gray area. Oh, but there are blurred lines. Mm -hmm. I, I choose to see consent as very simple. And I find that when we're talking about gray areas, um, about consent, it might not be as productive. I've also noticed that you know, talking about gray areas is often a tactic that abusers use to deflect from the main situation at hand. You know, when we're having discussions online or in person about these things, like, I mean, on social media, and people say, oh, it's not so straightforward. Oh, there are there are bloodlines. And I, and I, and I try to ask people, what's 
it is not so straightforward about whether this person was consenting to these acts or not. And I also try to tell people that whenever you find yourself in a situation where you're thinking, oh, am I crossing the line? Is this a gray area? And you're not very sure about it. It's best for you to just remove yourself from that situation because it's better to be safe than to be sorry. I choose not to call consent a gray area or to see consent or to see gray areas in consent because I really, really, truly believe that consent is very simple. It's as simple as ABC. And if we have like mutual respect for our sexual partners, we would see it in such a way that there is literally no, there are no complications to these things. I am in a particular situation where I'm starting to think, oh, is this person not comfortable? If I am starting to think that at that particular moment, then the best thing I should do is I should either ask and know for sure, or I should remove myself from that situation. I just choose to see things as very simple. And this is what I like to like talk to people. And this is the approach I like to take in telling people about, oh, when they're talking about gray areas and consent, I'm talking about blurred lines and consents. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Makes makes a whole bunch of sense there. And and Kitty, what about yourself there? Um, I I would hold the controversial view that it is all gray area um, mm-hmm. under a white supremacist capitalist patriarchy. Um, I feel that we are not always conscious of the ways that we are being coerced by the society that we live in. And because that society is the air we breathe, it is difficult for us to be aware. Now, the thing I think the media does is says, well, if we can't be sure, then why try at all? And I say, well, we can't be sure, so we should be trying constantly. Um, And I feel that sitting with that ambiguity is more of a responsibility, not less of a responsibility. I think a lot of people try to make it an excuse, but to me, that just increases your level of accountability to each other. Um, I do like the, I mean, Mm -hmm. for my personal life, I definitely distance myself from situations where I'm like, ooh, I really feel this coercion right now and I'm not into it, Mm -hmm. like I get, very stubborn and I dig my heels in and I say, you know what? No, actually, like I, especially interestingly, when it comes to professional things, Mm -hmm. it is a lot easier for me to put very strict boundaries of like, if this is not an enthusiastic hell yes, then I'm not down for it. Um, But that's because I'm much more financially stable. And so I don't have to do many things Mm -hmm. that I don't want to do. When I was not financially stable, um, I didn't get to say no as often as I would have liked to. And that wasn't the fault of the person giving me the job or putting me in that situation. That was a fault of society. Mm-hmm. Um, I, so in that way, I think it can be extremely complicated, but that is more reason to... be hesitant i guess Mm -hmm. to take your time um so yeah that's okay i want to pick up on your choice of language there that you said sexual coercion and you know i'm a massive advocate for how we expand our language around sexual violence consent harassment stalking all these kind of things and a lot of people might not define 
coercion as sexual violence just because they don't know and they don't recognize it as such. And I want to go particularly to Richard on that point. Uh, you know, you, you work with, with men quite a lot. Like, how does the language that you use impact the kind of content that you cover with the boys that you work with? Um, yeah, language is important. Um, like, um, um, like when, when working with other uh, men of color, I've I've learned that it's easier to um, for the conversation to move forward if instead of saying male privilege, that I say that we benefit from patriarchy or we benefit from sexism, because it may be easier to for the conversation to move forward because privilege can be very a charged word for people of color because we are oppressed, you know, and the privilege, what, what privilege to be targeted by police? Is that the privilege? Like, no, that's, that's, that's race. Like I'm talking about gender and, okay, so we benefit from patriarchy. We benefit from sexism. And I just don't deal with privilege. Um, in terms, and, and, and that opens up conversations for talking about rape culture, for talking about, because um, every, Every man knows somebody who has been assaulted, and um, and they can talk and say things that um, and uh, things like, well, while not all, while most men are not rapists, most rapists are men, and we can kind of move from there. So there's not this defensiveness. Is that well, I haven't, I haven't. And, and I can also be accountable to, well, I mean, I've messed up in the past too, because I've absorbed patriarchy. I've absorbed all this. I'm in a constant unlearning, you know? And yeah, there, there are people where I was like, wow, I need to be great if I could contact this person from high school and be like, I'm so sorry. I was stupid, you know, and, you know, whatever it was, you know, and to not put myself as like, well, I'm up here and you're down there you're like you know and to just yeah and we're all trying to unlearn patriarchy together yeah, and a very healthy you know. approach to have mm -hmm. that vulnerability out there on display mm -hmm. as well so i want to mm -hmm. go to laddie on that next so you know what's the type of language that you use if you're teaching in nigeria is it you know do you stick with consent do you use coercion what kind of language do you use there um, so when we're teaching in Nigeria, we mostly teach kids. So definitely we use easy to understand language, but we make sure that we explain to them the difference between consent and coercion. Coercion is obviously the opposite of not consenting to someone when you're being coerced. So um, I would say that, yeah, we make sure we use the appropriate languages in teaching different scenarios and making sure that they know that this particular scenario is what consent is and this other particular mm -hmm. scenario is what not consent is and what coercion is. So using different scenarios and using the appropriate language for these scenarios has definitely helped us in talking to these kids about consent. Absolutely. Okay. And then what about yourself, Sarah, as well? Um, you know, you're looking at how, you know, you're helping young people develop bodily autonomy. And so part of that is the language with that. How do they respond to that from yourself? Yeah, I, I try not to use the word consent too much because I, I think it has so many interpretations and it can be a heavily charged word. And even the idea of like getting consent and giving consent, I dislike. It's more for me about practicing consent. Um, again, for legal purposes, I, I understand it, but um, functionally. 
Um, I just think that practicing consent is so important. So it, it's not necessarily coercion that I would use, though it may come up, but it might be, you know, pressuring or um, why might someone feel like they have to say yes, even though like the person only asked once and it was really nice. And that goes to what Kitty was saying about um, like the, the influences that we live under, even like spatially, if you're in someone's room, if you're sitting on someone's bed, how those might impact you. So coercion, I don't think fully encompasses what's always happening when it's an unsafe sexual situation. So I try to stick to uh, kind of mirror whatever language they use. So I'll feel bad if, or they made me feel bad because, um, or I was embarrassed or um, just anything that makes it easy to identify. Because I think at the end of the day, it's again, like it's really easy to dismiss if you have like a very simple definition of what coercion is or what consent is, as long as it doesn't follow, as long as you can argue out of that, then you're in the clear. And so I want to make it kind of difficult to argue out of that by not defining it. Makes sense. Absolutely. Well, it's something that, that can make definitions apparently get a little bit um, misunderstood or understandings be misunderstood in that sense is the case of alcohol and consent. And I'm going to go to Kitty and, and Siobhan on this because Siobhan, you've done work with active consent around the role that alcohol may play um, in misunderstandings around consent. Can you talk us through that a little bit? Well, we live in Ireland, right? So alcohol is very much part of our culture and it's how, I mean, it's, it's one of the things why we don't have a very high teenage pregnancy rate because the young people get completely hammered and then they just can't get it together basically. So, you know, Guinness has been one of the things that have kept our teenage pregnancy rate down or so they say, you know, so there's a huge, we celebrate everything with alcohol from birth to death to marriage to people arriving in the house, everything revolves around alcohol. So as if people don't drink alcohol, that's really difficult. And one of the good things about the COVID has been the pubs have been shut and it's about people meeting each other and going on sober dates, going on walks together and actually getting to know each other. So, so sex and alcohol in Ireland is inextricably linked and creates all sorts of issues because I was drunk, I didn't know what I was doing, you were drunk, you know, is that if we're both drunk, is that okay? So, you know, that all gets very nuanced and who's who and what's, what did you say? And did I misunderstand your body language, all of that? So, you know, when I talk to young people, I say, well, you know, if you're going to get drunk, go and get drunk. If you want to go and get laid, go and get laid, but try not to put the two together because it just gets so confusing and you're not going to remember it and it's not going to be great. So, you know, let's try and divide that a little bit, but it's very difficult in a, in a culture which all social events circulate around alcohol and have done for centuries and it is to do with our weather as well you know we, it rains an awful lot so a lot of people are inside in the pub was a big social area it was the one place where you could go to meet other people to make your music to find someone who you might be attracted to so there's so there's huge sort of tradition around it so I mean in Ireland it's difficult but it's similar in England um, and they have slightly better weather and, you know, so in Europe, it's different, again, because of the weather and because of their attitude to alcohol. So I think it's a very, it's a very interesting relationship. But, you know, the law says, if you are drunk, you do not have the capacity to consent. And when you talk about that in a workshop with young people, they go, well, well, then, you know, where does that leave me? Like I drink, you know, I go out, I drink, then I take someone home, you know, and it's really complicated because so it's all about the communication it's all about saying just making sure make sure that you're reading the signs just ask just make sure you know and and to 
to have it as a communication, but it's the mutual. I keep on pushing the mutual. It's about both of you. It's or three of you or whoever, but it's about mutual. And that is a conversation you need to make sure that it's clear. So, you know, then it gets into that, you know, not black and white because we're all drunk. So, you know, so it's very, it's, it's very difficult, you know, and I, I, I haven't found the answer yet. You know, I've been working in this field for, since for decades and I still haven't found the easy way to explain it to young people, but it's about getting their understanding and get, giving them the skills to actually have a conversation and to listen to each other, body language and the communication and to accept that, you know, drunken sex isn't the best sex you're ever going to have. So maybe wait you're a little bit absolutely sober. yeah tell me about that <laughs> wasted many many a night on, on that aspect well like going from like you know a country that our teenagers are getting drunk a lot of the time to kitty you've been sober for a good amount of years now congratulations so what are Thank your you. thoughts on the alcohol and, and and sex and consent nuance well it's so interesting because i lived in england for four years right and i remember coming from the bdsm the the kink community out here in the um, San Francisco Bay Area, where you do not mix alcohol and sex at all. Like sex parties are generally sober. Then going to the UK, where that was not the case, and being like, oh, wow, you're doing full rope suspension and you are also drinking and possibly doing drugs. Like, huh, okay, um, cool. And like feeling very um, stodgy. <laughs> Uh, because I was just like completely bewildered by this. Because um, in, in the US, it's formally not acceptable. Now, the thing is, and we have Burning Man. And at Burning Man, you have a lot of the same kind of situations where you have people who are um, intoxicated, um, not just drugs and alcohol, but also the heat, dehydration can influence people to do things that they maybe shouldn't be doing, like sliding down a wedge covered in carpet into a concrete playa. <laughs> the bad idea, you know, but like you're, you're not at your best um, awareness and like decision-making processes. Um, it is really interesting going into consent conversations now being asexual and sober um, because for me, doing consent culture work led me to be like, I need to take all of this confusion out off my plate and just focus from a place of like, I don't know, a very sort of um, uh, monk type mindset uh, where like once I feel like I've got more of a grounding then I can start to take more things back on. But for right now, I just need simplicity because I do think it's all gray area. Um, yeah, I've done some workshops for Burning Man camps on consent and um, being intoxicated. And one of the, I mean, I'm kind of, I'm, I literally have a tattoo that says feminist killjoy. Unfortunately, one of the things I often say is, be comfortable being wrong. The likelihood that you are gonna cross somebody's boundaries or you're gonna miscommunicate is proportionally higher according to how drunk you are, how you know uh, high you are. So how, how comfortable are you taking accountability 
for being wrong? Um, how confident do you feel that you're not wrong? Um, and I think that that's not what people want to hear at all. They want, they want something very clear. They want to be able to fill out a form and like that it's done. But the fact is, you know, whether or not you're sober, you can still get things wrong. And people think about a situation years later and go, mm, yeah, that wasn't really great. Um, but I didn't realize what pressures I was under at the time. Um, and that just gets more complicated the more stuff you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I mean, for me, I sort of go to the opposite of like, let's learn how to take accountability for our actions. Let's learn how to hear that we fucked up without being defensive. Let's practice radical vulnerability. And I think that a lot of consent work starts there, starts with accepting our messing up, you know, accepting that we are fallible yeah. and we can have the best intentions and still hurt people. Absolutely. Um, that, that links a lot. Nice. Yeah, that links a lot to like sobriety and like that's something that you practice. I'm with the um, satanic sober faction. So they're very into bodily autonomy as like a core value. Um, and so I, I find that interesting. Um, yeah, it's not simple. And Siobhan, I absolutely feel you. I've been doing this work for years and I constantly end up with more questions than I have answers. But I think that that's part of this is that it's yeah. a living document and being comfortable with not knowing is super important. I think it, like both yourself and, and Richard there have mentioned that that feeling of vulnerability and that's such a lovely thing and that's what a lot of great sex is it's linked to vulnerability and openness and rawness and intimacy and all those kind of things so let's talk about how we bring that into the consent conversation and like you said being vulnerable and willing to know we don't have all the answers and everything else but if we start from the point of how do we build a consent culture that's also inclusive and dynamic and radical you know this is a fairly diverse panel tonight you know we have people who've engaged in sex work we have educators we have people working with all genders and ages and from different countries we have different genders and races and everything a lot of the conversations aren't normally as, as intersectional sometimes and that's obviously a massive sticking point but how do we build that consent culture and make it as inclusive as we possibly can and I want to go to Sarah first on that one I would say curiosity is the is the biggest one just not assuming that you know what someone else, uh, what their boundaries are, what their desires are, um, what they said last time applies to what they said this time, what it means that they showed up at a frat party, um, what it means that they're wearing a certain outfit. I think it's all just like assumptions and to replace that with curiosity um, is so important. I think, I mean, for me, especially working with um, working with kids is often working with parents. That's the biggest one like, oh, um, you know, why, I don't understand why my daughter wants to dress this way. And it's asked like a question, but it's, it's really a statement. It's, I don't like her dressing that way. 
But no, go back to that question. Why is she dressing that way? What does it, does it make her feel good? Um, is that because what all the other kids are doing? Is it because, um, you know, she's having body image issues? Is she uh, feels really good about her body? And like going, digging in and figuring out why are they doing or why are they saying the thing they're saying as opposed to just labeling it um, as, oh, that's what all of those people do or that's what that means, I think is is huge. Um, and it really goes back to that, it goes back to that gray area of why, like, why is someone smiling? Is someone smiling because they're on board and it's a hell yes? Or are they smiling because they're really nervous? And you can't know that without curiosity. Um, so yeah, that's what I'll say about that. (laughs) That's no, it's a lovely, it's also fun. There's a lot of sense of fun and playfulness and curiosity as well. So I like that injection of fun in that part. And what about you, Lade, over in Nigeria? Is there that same sense of, you know, making that conversation more inclusive? Because, you know, um, as well as being the second largest Guinness drinkers in the world, um, you also have, you know, a dynamics between (laughs) religion, same way as Ireland does. So how do you situate the consent conversation in amongst all that? Um, so growing up in a very patriarchal African society, um, consent is not something that is taught to a lot of us. Actually, for a lot of Nigerians, I would say, and I would say for like a lot of Africans, we had to do a lot of uh, unlearning and relearning and learning about feminism and these things on the internet. So it's always very interesting when we're talking to people about consent and we notice that the first line of action is they are being defensive and they're like, oh, what do you mean? Like, what do you mean what I did that time was wrong? Or what do you mean this is such a wrong thing to do? And I always try to tell people that in learning about consent, the very first thing you need to unlearn is you've been defensive. If you're being defensive in any way, you will not be able to progress in any way at all. You need to understand that this is actually not a direct attack at you, but it's an attack at our society, the kind of society that we grew up in. And you wouldn't be able to unlearn anything if you're being defensive about things. And I was also going to mention curiosity, like Sarah mentioned earlier. If you're not curious enough, you simply would not learn about consent. And it's basically like literally everything in life. If you want to know about something else, you're curious enough to take to Google and say, oh, how do I figure this thing out? How do I learn how to do this? If you are truly passionate about consent and also on learning about on learning every um, harmful things you've learned in the past, you have to be curious enough beyond people teaching you. You have to do this learning on your own. You also have to understand that it's also like beyond waiting for someone to come and tell you, no, this is wrong. And I also always tell people to trust their instincts. I truly believe that if we have mutual respect for ourselves in society, we would be able to handle these situations better regardless of the kind of society that we grew up in. If you're doing something wrong, you know at the back of your head that what you're doing is wrong. Even though religion has told you this is the right thing to do, even the society has told you this is the right thing to do, you know it's the wrong thing to do. So why not just listen to yourself and not just follow the rules that you're used to i mean we're fucking the rules sorry about my language we grew up in a very very like tightened society don't 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 follow the rules like trust your instincts believe that's what you this thing is right and this thing is wrong and you know 
bring down your defenses. Do not be defensive about learning about consent. Be curious enough to understand that you want to know more about this thing because you care about yourself and you care about other people and you care about the um, entire society at large. And also ensure that you know, um, also ensure that you're making this. Can still hear you, can see you. Oh, is just frozen. Okay, Ooh. we'll come back to Lade. Oh no, there you are. Yeah. There you are. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> For people. So yeah, that's what I always say. And speaking about making it as inclusive as possible, I try to tell people that teaching consent is like a ripple effect. It is not just about you knowing about consent. I believe we all have a civic responsibility to teach as many people as possible about consent because Think about it this way. If I teach you about consent and you teach the other person about consent, the other person teaches the other person about consent. Before we know it, we have a society where people fully understand boundaries, a society where people fully respect each other. This is a way we can make consent as inclusive as possible, ensuring that we're teaching people, ensuring that we do not just unlook when things are wrong and ensuring that we're doing our own, our own role and playing our own role in ensuring that everyone understands and practices consent and boundaries. Absolutely. I love that image of consent being a ripple because it is, it's, you know, you pay mm-hmm. a forward kind of approach. So that's a fantastic. Yeah. You should get that on a t-shirt or something. <laughs> it should be pretty cool. Um, I, well, I want to go to Richard on that because, you know, Lade's there saying about the, the patriarchy and, you know, it's in most countries that we, you know, live in, but you work specifically with men as well. And mm-hmm. how, how did they respond, you know, because we obviously need men on board to make this an inclusive right. conversation, but it can be hard right um i've been lucky that the 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 men that i've been working with have been receptive and and have the will to change and and want to and are kind of absorbing the material and you know i've been lucky in that in that regard um and youth just kind of really um when using the arts they're just really excited about it so regardless of gender, I mean, when I do um, things with youth, um, it's um, all genders, you know, and um, um, and it, it works really well, actually. Um, I would say, um, and speaking of youth, um, I think one thing for moving forward with, with consent culture um, has a lot to do with um, how we treat children. Um, and I think that in, most yeah. cultures, in most cultures, you're you're supposed to, you know, when the uh, when Uncle Henry comes in and say, "Oh, give me a hug," that you know, the, the that the child has to give a hug, otherwise it's it's a bad thing and the child's rude. And I think mm-hmm. if we actually just normalize that, you know, let children have autonomy over their bodies and and, and maybe to intervene and like you know what. Hey, um, okay, so you don't want to hug Uncle Henry. Um, do you want to give a fist bump? Okay, do you want to just wave? Can, or do, you know, just to give them options to, to just from an early age, let them know that they have autonomy over their bodies would be amazing. Absolutely. Yeah. The great way mm-hmm. to start that consent conversation without any sex talk or anything like that. It's such a, right. you know, it's about respecting bodies. But, uh, you, you know, you mentioned there about doing um, drama and movement and things like that. And I know, Siobhan, you're mm-hmm. also doing that with the, the play that you do for active consent, which is the kinds of sex you might have in college. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? 
and how that uses like art to build up consent culture well i think it's very interesting to have a play because a play is far more sort of visceral than actually seeing something on the screen and you're actually in the theater and there are people acting out in front of you and it's not real you know you know it's not real for a start so they're not pretending that this is real they're acting out a scene for you and the scenes that we create in that are created in the drama they're workshop with young people and it's based on the data that we've gathered from young people as to the context and where what's happened to them and their ideas about consent so it's all based on on the reality of Irish young people and then creating something dramatic out of it so that people can then reflect for themselves and think for themselves and say, oh yeah, you know, that's how I felt. I felt so confused and yet, okay. So, you know, so there's lots of different stories or vignettes within the drama that go from being very sort of funny and amusing ways of looking at consent culture. You know, you know, there's a consent policeman and there's a couple under a blanket and they're going, what, what, you know, and then in the end they say, no, are you into this? Yeah. Okay. So we don't need to sign that contract, you know, so sort of blowing out of the water, all these sort of ideas about consent. And Mm. it, I think it's very, very powerful and anybody, and then there's a talk back afterwards. So people stay and talk about how they, they reacted and, and what does that actually mean and, and all that kind of stuff. And I think it affects people far greater than, than just, looking at a video of, you know, sick people doing consent or whatever, because Mm. it's real, because it's in front of you. And -hmm. because you can almost feel, you know, it's, I think drama is amazing. I think real life Mm -hmm. plays Mm -hmm. in front of an audience create a different, a different effect than any other way of talking about consent or or anything. And, you know, any kind of behavior that you're talking about with young people, I think drama works really, really well. And a lot of young people in Ireland anyway, have not been to the theater. You know, the, you know, the theater is, you know, it's like opera is too expensive or there isn't a theater what's going on. So young people aren't used to theater and I think it really gets them. So I think it's a very clever way, like your art, Richard, that you're talking about, you know, when you Mm. you use a different medium to, discuss something that is being discussed in the newspapers it's mm-hmm. in everything mm-hmm. it's in school you know people are t- mm-hmm. discussing it all the time but then you see it in a different way it mm-hmm. affects your brain in a different way and you reflect yes. in a different way and i think you you take it inside yourself in mm-hmm. a in a more personal way and i think it works really really well and i'm very mm-hmm. i'm very proud of the drama you should all come and see the drama when it's uh-huh. on again let's all go you know we'll have a non-alcoholic drink We'll watch the drama together and then we'll discuss how we feel afterwards. And I think I like it. That sounds like a great day. That's an invite. (laughs) Can I I I comment to that? Sorry. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, I wanted to make a comment, but go ahead. (laughs) Oh, okay. I just wanted to say that I absolutely and 100% agree with Siobhan regarding Mm. the drama because in a line of work, we've noticed that role-playing is the most effective medium right. in teaching kids about consent mm. because it's literally like they're seeing their lives play out it's mm. i don't know whether it's psychological or something but it's a much more effective approach mm-hmm. in talking to these kids about consent and i definitely agree that we should definitely use more drama and this is why it's also important um regarding the media that our kids consume what they watch on tv it's very very important to make sure that we're talking about consent in these spaces and this is where we're trying to like push consent into our media as as hard as possible so they can see and they can see how these mirrors are day to day life so yeah i just wanted to say i definitely have to be shipping on that 
Absolutely. Yeah. Fantastic points. Yeah. Uh, Richard, you wanted to come in as well? Yeah, uh, similar, similar points. Um, I mean, the arts circumvent all the defense mechanisms of, of language and you, you're just in it. You just embody it. And um, we, yes, I definitely use drama, um, bystander intervention techniques, um, use drama and the whole thing of enacting a scenario where somebody um, may be getting assaulted or something like that is about to happen to give people the opportunity to, to step into it and do a creative and nonviolent intervention is they get to rehearse the world that we all want. They get to um, empower themselves and practice um, practice this. And when I've worked with youth, I remember uh, one um, one person, she was like, it's like, wow, it's like watching a YouTube and then stepping into it. And and they were relating to it on that level and they they, they really just jumped in with both feet. That is fab and also mm -hmm. makes me feel like a dinosaur. But yeah, <laughs> that's ah. like to see that, that approach. That's fantastic. Um, mm -hmm. I want to go to Kitty next. You know, you've engaged in, in sex work and sex workers are like left out of the conversation on consent quite a lot and sometimes mm. deliberately left out of that conversation due to politics and ideology. But obviously sex workers are navigating consent in many ways um, in a day-to-day thing as their job so how can we bring sex workers and their knowledge of consent more into this inclusive consent culture oh uh, well i mean first of all ask if they want to be a part of it because frankly it is unpaid work and i'm not going to tell sex workers that they should uh engage in unpaid work ever or anyone actually i try as much as possible to pay people for their labor um, and a lot of this work isn't socially valued. Um, so mm. I think that's the first thing. Like, if we want to make this an inclusive conversation, we got to figure out a way to pay people for it. And mm. that means audiences need to feel invested enough to pay um, workshop facilitators and panelists and performers. And um, yeah, I mean, and that's really tough, like, but that is a, that is definitely a factor. Um, I also think like a lot of, a lot of the panelists here have been talking about education and kids. I think that pornography is a media where you can have that drama for adults mm. Mm. and you can show by doing um, both explicitly and implicitly. Um, a lot of the work that I do, we do talk very frequently during the scene about what we're what we want to do. Um, we make a practice of making a bid that the other person says no to, because we d you don't see that in porn. Everyone says yes all the time, um, and it's really nice to be like, no, actually, I really don't like feet stuff. Like, please do not suck on my toes right now. That would really gross me out. But how about this other thing? And like, I think also being a being someone who has worked in the industry, being super comfortable with seeming a little bit goofy. I don't feel like I have to be polished all the time. Um, and radical vulnerability has been very much part of my my brand um, for many many years, and it is uncomfortable sometimes. But I think it also makes these conversations so much more accessible. I 
constantly talk about ways in which I have bypassed someone's boundaries consciously and unconsciously. And by being willing to stand up in front of people and say, look, like I'm a consent culture thought leader or influencer, whatever we call them now. And I still mess up all the time. Like it is a part of existence and it doesn't have to be the end of your life to be told that you messed up. Um, Yeah. So much of it for me comes back to that. I think that so much of the tension that we experience is because people are afraid to say when their boundaries have been crossed because they're afraid of being the one who messed up. Um, They're afraid that society is going to tell them, well, you shouldn't have done this or you should have done this other thing. You should have been more explicit. Um, You shouldn't have been there, whatever. And also, I think we're afraid to hear that we've done something wrong because we're afraid of being, we're afraid of being accountable. Everyone's afraid of being accountable. Um, And I truly think that it's important to teach kids that it's okay to be accountable and that vulnerability is a sign of safety. If somebody tells you, hey, you crossed my boundary, they're trusting you. And that's a beautiful thing. If someone says no to you, it's because they trust that you'll listen. And that's amazing. And like reframing those things is so important. Also, adults need that too. <laughs> like I, I've been, you know, single and dating and like the number of people who are afraid to hear no or afraid to hear like that didn't feel great for me is everyone (laughs) like and I think that like that there is something if we want to model this stuff for kids that stuff we need to model for each other as well like we need to be the change that we want to see in the world Mm -hmm. kids are watching us all the time and they're absorbing um and so are other adults (laughs) honestly so like Let's make sure they absorb I, I, I guess, stuff. Yeah, I feel like it can feel like such a depressing conversation. And like, I, I get that. It is a heavy conversation for sure. Um, but it is also such an exciting conversation. Like, I love that people don't hug me without asking anymore. That has made being a social person so much easier. Um, and like, I love that people are learning not to pressure other people for one more drink. I love that people are learning that stuff, you know, because these are like subtle ways in which we impress, we press each other's boundaries all the time. People are starting to learn like, oh, maybe that is coercion. And it doesn't mean that it's got ill intentions, but it's still there. And I guess like getting more comfortable with being uncomfortable yeah, is uh, yeah. something that I try to model a lot for other people. No, absolutely. And uh, yeah, I keep coming back to what you're saying, that radical vulnerability is just so fantastic a concept. Um, 
I think we'll all have to have you all back on an individual podcast just to pick that apart a little bit more. But um, just before we finish, we have a couple of questions come in. And if anyone else in the audience wants to um, send in a question, please feel free to do so. Um, this one is one huge issue, I think, of how girls aren't raised to believe that sex is something for them or that they should enjoy so how can you vocalize or even know about what you want and most importantly what you don't want so who wants to take that question is that not more of a comment than a question comment yeah how, you're saying you know <laughs> they, you don't know what you want or you don't want because you've been raised to think well you know you sex you know you just have babies or you're a slut if you're into sex and you know boys are supposed to like it and they may not like it, you know, they may not want a blowjob, whereas everybody thinks that that's what the ultimate thing is, start there and go from there. And I think the interesting thing is to actually introduce to people, well, you know, you may not like that. Yeah. You know, it's assumed that, oh, God, it's all going to be great. And you're going to like it. And then you try something you don't like it. What's wrong with me? Everybody else likes it. So, I mean, it's about saying there is a choice here and it is about bodily autonomy and everybody's different. You don't have to like everything. But it's assumed that you will because either you you have this part of your anatomy or you have that part of your anatomy and everybody likes that. And, and you know, the choice and being aware that it's not everybody doesn't like the same things. And, you know, it's it's changing. I mean, there's a whole thing with girl power and understanding that it's pleasurable and you have, you know, it, but it's all about masturbation then, isn't it, for girls? If girls masturbate from an early age, then they form, feel more empowered about their body. They understand how their bodies work and what might give them pleasure, and they're able to vocalise it more. There's very few study on masturbation but uh, uh, among young people, but there was one particular study, and that's what they found, that the empowerment of the young girls to actually say what they might like and wouldn't like because they were more aware of how their bodies worked. And yet there's still such a taboo around masturbation for girls, not so much about for boys, but still, you know, people don't talk about it openly. And, you know, so I think... There's all of that, but I think things are changing. I'll stop talking. No, it's slowly but surely changing. Absolutely on that. And then we just had one more comment. Um, there's so. Oh, much... can I add something really quick? Yeah, go for it. Go for it. Cool. Um, I was also going to say that even the framing of like want or don't want is is pretty binary. I think giving someone an option of, you know, do you like it like this, like that, not at all, more, less, mm. harder, softer. Um, I think it doesn't have to be this like, oh, you didn't like that. Okay, so we're never going to approach this activity ever again. It really can be, again, like getting into that nuance, getting into that conversation um, to figure out, do you truly not like it at all, which is great, fine. Or do you just not like it the way that person, that one person did it that one time? Um, so I just wanted to add that um, in case that was a question more than a, a comment. <laughs> you reminded me of, um, did you see in the news this week that um, it was a Batman or Superman, Batman, that Batman doesn't go down <laughs> on, on girls. So DC or Marvel, whoever, I don't know. Um, the, the producer people um, took it out and it was like, no, superheroes don't go down on women. And there's huge backlash. And it was just like, this is this thing that apparently like, stud men don't do so is that a comment on masculinity like what's going on there and yeah that's kind of a thing kitty you had your hand up there yeah i just i like i i was raised in a pretty sex positive house and so i wasn't raised with shame around sexuality but we also didn't know what asexuality was and 
So like I have, I'm still unpacking a lot of my own experience, which is if I've been in this sex positive um, world and society where it's very, it almost felt like there was a lot of pressure to figure out what I liked and to know what I wanted and that I must want something, right? Like, and it was a little complicated for me to look back on my experience as a sex worker and be like, oh, okay. Like part of why that was really easy for me and like enjoyable for me is because I was asexual and the sex wasn't important to me at all. Um, And like, that's not, especially like in feminist pornography worlds, like that's not acceptable. (laughs) Like you're supposed to be enthusiastic about the sex that you're having. It's supposed to be like a spiritual calling or, you know, something that, you you know, you really love your body and that. And for me, it was like, I didn't mind. And it was an easier way to make money that was better for my body than working retail. So, and like, I feel like that also has to be a part of this conversation as complicated as that is that like, sometimes you're making the best choice that you can for right now, and it might not be the best choice forever. Um, But it also doesn't mean that you have to hate that. You know, like, you can feel apathetic about things. And that's totally fine. Absolutely. Yeah, sometimes consent is just, ah, go on, like, it's fine. You know, it doesn't have to be yes, this is the best thing in the world. Absolutely ever. So um, we will unfortunately have to wrap up there, even though this could easily be a two hour live session, because I love all the work that you're doing. And I know we've only scratched the surface a little bit. So you all have to come back for um, individual um, podcasts. Um, if you don't mind, that would be fantastic. Um, I'm going to get I have um, some products to give away as well from Hanks as well. So um, Sarah, I'm going to get you to pick a letter of the alphabet for me and whoever's in the audience with that letter they get to win some awesome hanks goodies all right a g g we've no g's (laughs) uh r or we have a rachel yay rachel congratulations drop me a dm and i'll get your prize out on the way to you and then lada i'm gonna go for yourself you pick a letter from the alphabet Um, D. D. I've no D's, but I have an Aoife daily. So Aoife, congratulations. You are also a winner. So again, drop me a line and um, I'll get your goodies out to you as well. It's at Glow West podcast and you can find the information there. So listen, everyone, thanks, Emil. Um, where can people find you? Kitty, I'll start with you. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Kitty Stryker. Uh, you can find me at consentculture.com. Um, I am the co-facilitator for the International Day of Consent, which will be coming up in November. Hopefully I'll talk to a bunch of you panelists about maybe doing something for that. Um, But this time we're doing like a three-day weekend. So if you look at idoconsent.org, you can find information on that. Uh, And yeah, I'm pretty much Kitty Stryker everywhere. Uh, Do keep in mind that I have worked in the adult industry so don't Google me at your workplace. <laughs> yeah, kind of always important to have. Um, Siobhan, where can people find you? I'm so old, I don't do any of that social media stuff. So basically, I'm <laughs> Siobhan Dotter Higgins at NUI Galway. Sorry, that's me. You okay. can have my phone number, but I don't think I should give my phone number anyway. So, you know, that's you can email me. 
or talk to me through active consent sorry it's all above my head all that social media stuff that's fine that's fine that's the way I am a dinosaur really <laughs> uh, Richard what about yourself yes um thanks for this by the way and uh I'm on Instagram and it's right my last name w-r-h-e-h-d Richard and then my middle initial m so at right Richard M. Perfect. Thank cool. you. And uh, Sarah. Oh, oh, I know. And I have a website. Uh, oh. and I have a website, richardmright.com. Okay. Perfect. Yeah, don't forget that. That's important. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sarah. Uh, the best place to find me is on Instagram at comprehensiveconsent and uh, comprehensiveconsent.com. Fantastic. Cool. And last but by no means, least Lady. Um, sorry, I had to turn off my camera. My internet was misbehaving. <laughs> That's okay. Um, so yeah, you can find me on Instagram or on Twitter at Lade Kill. So it's um, my first name, Lade, and the last four alphabets in my surname. Okay, so, perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. And you'll all be tagged um, when the episode goes out as well. This will be going out on Thursday as a live podcast. Pat Patreons get it a day earlier because thank you for your support. You're all awesome, lovely human beings. And thanks Mel, for everyone in the audience and for the questions. We will probably come back to consent about a billion times um, over the next little while anyway, of course, um, with all these lovely people here before me. If you want to drop me a line, as you said, it's the um, on Instagram and Twitter. It's at Glow West Podcast. And if you feel like supporting the show, I'd super appreciate that. It helps keep the bills going. And that is patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. So thanks, Emil, and we will see you next time. Bye.